when I was um, nine years old, I was actually suspended from school for fighting. And my house, I used to live on Earl Street. My mom comes home and she's like, um, you know, you've been home all day and you ain't take out this garbage, you know. And she's like, you know, getting on my case about it. And then I'm like, you know, all right, well, I'll take out the garbage right now. And, when, and in the process of taking out the garbage, um, I go outside and in the back of my house, there was a, um, a basketball court. I go outside and I'm looking, um, there's a guy, he's being shot, um, like up close and personal. And I'm, I, to the point, like he must have got shot like five or six times. I mean, I can see like, you know, it was so um, visual. I can see the bullets going in. I can see like the flesh like tearing from his body. And I'm saying to myself, like, is this real? Because he's not falling. He was a big person. And it's, it's just too surreal to actually believe this close, this up close and personal. Um, it was real. He did eventually fall. I went um, back in the house and I told my mom what happened. And just like I think like plenty other um, kids, it got kind of swept underneath the rug. Welcome to Disinvested a podcast about reimagining a city and building a stronger, more inclusive community. Created by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. I'm Tyler Johnson. You just heard from Hartford resident Warren Hardy. Warren is the founder of HYPE, which stands for Helping Young People Evolve. Like so many other people in our city, Warren first experienced violence at an early age. That experience mixed with other traumas of growing up in an urban environment took a toll on Warren. In this episode, we're going to talk about community safety. It's important to note that crime and violence, like so many other things, are not equally distributed. Hartford has gained a reputation for being a dangerous city, but most of the residents who live here will go their whole life without being a victim of a major crime. More than 100,000 people commute into the city every day for work and fun, and most of them are never impacted. For those in certain neighborhoods, however, it's a different story. Community safety is about lowering crime rates. It's about improving the perception of our city and making Hartford a more attractive place to live and work. It's also about caring for those most affected by crime and violence. Each life lost to violence is a tragedy, but there's also a tragedy of lost potential. Each kid forced to live under constant trauma and threat of violence is a loss for our community at large. They could be flourishing, but instead, they're struggling just to survive. Warren Hardy overcame mountains of adversity to become a positive influence in his community. Many kids in our region aren't so lucky. To truly make our community safer, we have to go beyond reacting to crime and address the roots of the problem. Here's more from Warren. Well, it affected my psyche to the point to where I kind of took it on as a normal thing because that was like the first time, but then I continued to see other acts of violence, whether it was gunshots or somebody being beat up or stabbed. The one thing that was common was that it was never addressed. It was just, you know, okay, this is life. My father would, um, would abuse my mom, and um, my mom was pregnant with me at the time. I've come to learn that um, even in the womb, you're exposed to violence and trauma. 
Ira Nazario, President and CEO, Peace Center of Connecticut. And I grew up uh, in that household and eventually outside of that household, uh, addicted and believing that violence was an option that you always turn to in order to control someone. So for me, it was really important uh, that I, I was as strong as I could be, that I was as angry as I could be, and that I was unafraid at every moment because fighting and uh, violence was going to be my remedy to everything. Uh, by the age of 11, I had uh, a number of fights and I witnessed my first um, homicide. I think it slowly escalated to becoming almost like a need. There were instances where if I hadn't fought or I hadn't gotten into a conflict, I was not feeling right. I felt like my day wasn't complete. So um, at the age of 13, I stabbed my girlfriend uh, four times. Um, again, thought she deserved it. Thought that that was the answer to controlling her. Uh, my first gang that I joined, I was in my teenage years. And, you know, I used the term gang loosely on that one. It was just a couple of friends that wanted to have a name that we rec recognized for something. And uh, we called ourselves the GQ crew. And uh, I was 11 years old. So didn't really know much about gangs or anything like that. But when you talk about the, the more serious gangs, uh, the Los Solidos gang, which was I was a member for a number of years, it was really, uh, you know, I would equate it to a family. Gang lifestyle is is a very tragic, but it's also a very supportive life too, because there are people that care about you genuinely. Like they will sacrifice everything. It's just that when you're involved in it, the negative is always going to be involved. And then at 27, I was indicted by the FBI for some crimes we had committed. That's when I finally was like, okay, I need to figure out a way to remove myself completely from this life or I'm going to continue to come back to prison. New from the overnight, police are looking for those responsible in the shooting of three men in Hartford. We are following some developing news from Hartford South End where a shootout in the capital city in the middle of the day left four people wounded. Police say a 15-year-old was shot and killed last night. Hartford 911, what is the location of your emergency? Uh, Berkeley High School. My name is David Owens and I'm a reporter with the Hartford Current. I cover courts and crime. There's just been a steady run of gun violence. Uh, it's staggering the toll it takes, and it's frustrating. I don't know that there has been a worsening of the situation. It's just been this steady, sad story of gunfire, gun crime in Hartford that just keeps claiming young lives. I think it just gets back to the problems of an urban community, a lack of jobs, a lack of opportunity. I've heard stories about the trauma especially children experience from living in a community, from living in a neighborhood where there's high crime, where there's gunfire. These kids can't go outside or they've got to worry about a, um, a bullet coming through a window or coming through a wall of their house. It, it takes a toll. I think vital cities are critical to any community. I mean, we, those of us who live in the suburbs live in the suburbs of Hartford. Hartford is the center. And if, if Hartford's not successful, that's not good for any of us. Um, but the other crime, the less serious crime, uh, although not less serious to the victims, burglaries, car break-ins, car thefts, that spreads to a much wider area. The other part of it, of course, is, is the tremendous number of good and wonderful law-abiding people in Hartford who, who are getting by and living their lives and doing the best they can, and, and they're victims of, of this, this conduct as well. Deborah Davis, program manager uh, slash member of Mothers United Against Violence, the primary reason and, and the focus point for Mothers United Against Violence, they were part of a group that had come together in Hartford 
to address some of the violence that had been occurring but wasn't being addressed by other individuals. And these were basic services, uh, counseling, grief counseling, trauma reduction, all of those things, food, uh, clothing. These were some of the things that were absolutely going just ignored. That was my goal, to try to help others because I know that I knew that the resources were not there. I knew that it was hard to access and individuals did not care about me the way and about my son the way I cared about my son. Philip was probably, I think, in my mind, of course, and as, a, as one of the best moms in the world, um, was one of the uh, most unbelievable giving child that you could ever meet. Um, very uh, warm, generous, always wanting to help other people. I knew at some point that he was going to be uh, challenged because he was not sort of the, some quote unquote, sometimes of the norm, but he got bullied for that. He really got bullied for that. He got bullied for so many other things. He wanted to belong. And a lot of the, a lot of young people are like that. They definitely want to fit in. This one, when it happened, it was like, I wasn't even in town. I was in, um, I was in Florida and I heard about it and I was like, it's crazy. Cause I, I knew him and we were like close. So I don't know what I'm going to say now, but it's just going to come. Okay, here we go. Philip Davis died from gun violence in 2010. He was 20 years old. Philip was always the life of the party. He had everyone smiling. He loved masonry, and he was always very, very positive. I personally knew Philip, and he was a great person. Each victim of gun violence has a unique story, unique gifts, and people who care about them. They all had so much more to give. Last year, the Hartford Foundation helped to create the Community Safety Coalition, a group of five grassroots organizations, including Mothers United Against Violence. These groups have been doing amazing work for years, but by combining efforts and sharing data, they'll have a wider reach and will hopefully be able to save more of the next generation of young people from violence. We were making small, very small strides, but the Community Safety Coalition was almost as if they actually heard our cry. And it was a little louder. Take your time. So you never know when that's going to come. <laughs> so, um, so coming together with all of the groups that were actually doing the work, the work making a big difference in our, in our communities, helping with um, the reduction of trauma, uh, prevention of gun violence, stabilizing the neighborhood at large, and being able to have the resources to do that. And that was um, a charge that we felt, oh, finally, people can hear. My name is Jay Williams. I'm the president and CEO of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. We are taking a more direct, hands-on approach to community safety because of our conversations and experiences with the residents of the communities that the data demonstrates are being disproportionately affected and impacted by violence, and particularly gun violence. Uh, it is inescapable when you begin to drill down and understand the trauma that is uh, inflicted upon families who are victims or families who live in those neighborhoods who are afraid to send their children out to the playground, whether it's just down the block or across the street. I have lived this uh, as a resident of the community, have lived this as a mayor. Uh, we want to offer ourselves as 
uh, not just the financial resources, but the convening, uh, the public policy resources, the capacity building resources. And so far, uh, the response that we've gotten from those organizations is very much welcoming. You can't talk about community safety without mentioning the police. One of the biggest and most positive trends in police work over the past several years has been the rise in community policing. Brian Foley served as a Hartford police officer for more than 20 years. He is now the commissioner's aide for the Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. Community policing way back, you know, when I first started was just, you know, kind of getting the cops out on the beat more, um, developing relationships because things over the last 50 to 100 years prior to that uh, really had some bad things go on in law enforcement and police work. And so it was a start to try to repair some of those fractured relationships uh, that especially seem to exist in urban or impoverished areas. You know, community policing is so much more than just throwing some pictures up on Facebook. It's long-term commitments. It's understanding your community. It's having relationships. A city should have some say in how they are policed. And in that, they need to they need to know that they're involved in the decision-making. You can see who comes to a scene and who really cares. You can see who comes to community meetings and who really cares. And who try to concentrate on the people who really want to change things, who really want to do the work, who are going to be at the grassroots level, and they care. And I don't care if they're critics of the police department. Fantastic. Uh, in fact, our critics are our best compasses sometimes and can point us in the right direction. But we need them to care and want to do the work in the community. And it's about forming coalitions with many, not just one, different types of groups out there. And there's a lot of groups. And those relationships don't come overnight. My name is Stephen Austin, sergeant with the Hartford Police Department. Currently, I'm assigned to the Community Response Division. Community policing, it's not just an effort. It's something that's ingrained into the DNA of the department. It's a mindset where you're going to work knowing that the people that you serve are the most important people, the most important businesses. Everyone here has a special place, and our job is to make them feel safe and secure, but also that we're a part of the solution as opposed to being part of the problem. It's hard to protect and serve if you don't respect first, and that's always been my motto is, like, you have to respect before you can protect. From a law enforcement standpoint, I think the biggest misconception is that, in particular when you're, when you're policing in an urban area, that people of color are all dangerous. We're seeing more and more diversity in law enforcement, and I think that's helping a lot, not coming with preconceived notions of what individuals are and what a community is. And then from the community standpoint, I think the misperception of police is that all cops are out to get you. Law enforcement officers are human. They have emotions. They have wives. They have children. I'm an African-American male. My experience with law enforcement was were, were negative. I, I have to really say that I didn't really uh, appreciate some of the things that I know now as a law enforcement officer that law enforcement officers have to deal with on a daily basis. However, that being said, I did know some officers who were good and who were very nice. And I, and I think that kind of stuck with me some way to somewhat uh, of, of a degree in the back of my mind. When the opportunity came for me to become a law enforcement officer here in the city, I also wanted to be a role model. You see, because when you come from a challenging area, one of the things that we don't see a lot is success. We want to make sure that more kids have that opportunity to have that kind of success. And that's how you build that vibrant community. Sergeant Austin runs a number of events that he uses to build trust within the community. We asked him about one of his most popular events, a Friday night basketball league. Well, you know, I've had my, <laughs> I can play, um, but I don't play that much anymore. I, you know, listen, I'm 56, they're 17. It's a big difference. 
my thing was to go in and I kind of sit on the sideline and, you know, tease them like who can play, who can't play. And, and then they'll come in and they'll sit down. And this is where relations, because now our guards are down. We're talking, we're joking, we're laughing. And then um, individuals will open up to you. And uh, the conversations start with basketball, but then they kind of, sing, you know, segue into life. You know, just, just being human, humanity. You, you'd be surprised, and especially from kids, because kids, you know, they thought like no one listens to them. It's little things, the minutia, that make up the big picture. A lot of times we want to get to the solution without doing the small work that builds that foundation. My name is Abdul Rahman Ibn Muhammad, and I'm the executive director of My People Clinical Services. For each person is different, right? So people come to us having experienced various levels of trauma, and then also even their experience with the trauma that they've experienced, they, the way that they show it is different. And so oftentimes for us, what, what we're trying to do is provide them with the support and empowerment to help them get to the place where they can actually have um, a successful life. And it's also teaching them how to cope, you know, like trying to cope with the things that, that they're dealing with, the way that they're feeling. Very quickly in our city, what we see is that uh, an argument can turn into something that causes somebody to go to the hospital, especially the young men, the young boys. They're out there. They are so riled up all the time. Their baseline is like a 10, and they don't even know it. So, like, when they respond to something, it doesn't start, like, at a 1. It's already at a 10 because they have to kind of go harder than they, they should they don't even know the effects of what they've been experienced, what they've seen, what they heard, what what something happened to somebody else they know. And so that's what we really have to work with people on because violence begets violence. We get more violence because of the fact that nobody's knowing how to like deal with it. If we could help people to kind of like wind down, imagine if somebody's starting at a one instead of starting at a ten. Maybe then they could be able to talk their way out of it as opposed to creating a new situation. Here again is Warren Hardy. After experiencing trauma in his youth, Warren turned to using and dealing drugs, stealing cars, and other crimes. He joined a gang and was sentenced to 12 years in prison, ultimately serving six. After his release, Warren founded Hype, Helping Young People Evolve, an organization dedicated to violence prevention. Here Warren talks about something he calls getting to the why. Well, the first thing I do is try to perform either CPR or first aid, but in more of a psychological sense, meaning um, if I meet a young person, my goal is to try to find out, does this person have something to live for? They have been witness to the same trauma, the same um, violence that I myself have witnessed and it has been unaddressed but the problem is that they're using that as an excuse to continue to kill or get themselves killed. I use all those personal experiences as a way to say hey um, nobody owes you anything but let me teach you some coping skills, some principles, and some morals um, that will help you be able to better um, deal with whatever situation, you know what I'm saying, might arise. I try to make them understand that I need them, right, as much as they need me. And that's a lot of times is missing because we always talking down to the kids. We're always telling the kids to do this and do that. Um, a lot of adultism. Like I work with young people, and when I've told them um, that I have, I need them, you should see the look on their face. It's like, well, well, what? What do you mean you need me? Yeah, I need you. I'm learning from you, right? In order for for my survival, 
as as you need to learn from me for your survival. But when we don't, when I'm saying take those type of approaches, we kind of like miss the opportunity to really be effective with working with these young people. Well, in March of 2019, we had about four homicides in less than a week. And to me, this was unacceptable. I was like, you know, something has to be done. So since March of 2019, every Thursday or Friday, um, I have been on the corner of either Garden and Martha or Garden and Westland lighting candles um, to send a message of peace, love, life, light, unity, and nonviolence. And a lot of times people come up and they ask the question, you know, what, who died? And I'm able to say no one died. And the sigh of relief that comes on their face um, is, is priceless. And then when they say, well, what is it about? And I tell them it's about peace. So we try to bring light to these areas that, you know what I'm saying, have experienced too much darkness. I view this as a life and death situation. I know how I felt when I, you know, didn't have anybody to turn to when I felt all alone. We have to view these young people as our own kids. We have to be willing to risk our own lives in an attempt to save them. At first, it was just supposed to be a normal day. Um, my whole family, we always go to the, uh, we go to the Jamaican prayer every year because that's where everybody's at for the day. Everybody's on Main Street because it's, it's this big event. Um, this day, it was already unusual because before I left the house, I had already told my mom, like, I kind of feel like somebody's going to get shot. That's Tariq Marquez. When I was seven, I was already used to hearing gunshots. I was already used to people dying every day. Like, that was, I was immune to that. Like, it didn't, it didn't bother, it bothered me, but, like, I was already, like, prepared for the worst at all times. I was with my sister and her friend. My sister was a teenager at the time. And we ended up going back to the house because, you know, I'm young, my legs are tired, we're walking around all day. So we sat down and then we go back later on in that evening and we go to look for my sisters and we hear gunshots. All the sidewalks cleared and everybody on the main street because that's where the parade was, it's hosted on the street. Once we hear the gunshots, we started to run. Um, we didn't realize that we were running towards them instead of running away from them. So we split, hoping to meet back up, but I ended up getting shot. They ended up behind me and they seen me and they stayed screaming for help. And um, that's all I remember until I woke up in the hospital. I didn't feel comfortable going back to school because of my condition. The, when I got shot, I was left with partial paralysis. So I wasn't comfortable like being around normal people at, at the time because I felt like I was gonna be looked at different. So I ended up being homeschooled. It was what you would call depressing, but if I'm seven, I don't really know what depression is. When we moved into the house we moved into, it came with a, a basketball court. So my stepdad moved the basketball court to the front and I ended up like, you know, learning how to play basketball on one hand and stuff like that. Began to get more comfortable just being around other kids. That's when I told my mom that I want to go back to school, but it was like saddening because I wanted to be the old me, but then you realize it, it makes you different. It makes you unique, you stand out. So I'm Patricia Kelly, and I'm the president and CEO of Ebony Horsewoman. I'm also the founder. I, want, I think I wanted to be a nurse. It's been so long ago, I think I've kind of forgotten, but I think I really wanted to be a nurse, but God had other 
ideas. As a child, uh, my parents bought a home in a predominantly white neighborhood in the north end of Hartford, and I lived next door to a gentleman who had a horse. Later on in life, I found that my father had been a jockey, so I knew it was kind of like in my blood. So it worked well for us. Horses worked out our issues, helped us to manage our stresses and uh, manage our emotions. But it was about a year after formulating the Ebony Horsewomen that we learned that the kids were in worse shape than we were. Patricia Kelly and Ebony Horsewomen do more than teach young people to ride horses. Many of the children who come to their farm have suffered prior traumas and face enormous barriers to success. Kelly was named a CNN hero in 2015 for her work with these kids. So taking a writing lesson, what you have to do is that you have to hear the instructor. Many of our kids come here with about 10 seconds of focus time. So that's education. So when they get to school, I'm listening to the teacher longer now than I am before. I'm not daydreaming as much. Executive functioning is really kicking in. It begins to help control um, poor, impulsive management, but you must follow the rules. Because if you can't follow them here, you will absolutely get into trouble out there, if not get arrested or killed. I believe in work. On a farm, there's an awful lot of work, and nobody gets a free lunch. Nobody gets a free lunch here. You want to ride my horse? You're going to do some work. And work is therapy. When they are working and using their bodies and sweating and getting tired, they're not worried about somebody saying something bad about them on social media. They're not worried about having a fight. They're not worried about any of that. Work is therapy. It's important. It's, you know, the things that these black and brown children have to learn to survive kind of takes away their childhood a little bit. Um, just to put a pin in that story, we had, a, we had a little girl here who had a lot of emotional problems, and they bred chickens um, that spring. And 30 days later, we had chicks, and one of the chicks couldn't stand. But we kept them. But winter was coming on, and as that chick grew, he couldn't lift himself off of the ground, and he was getting um, hypothermia from laying his chest on the ground, he couldn't put his chest up with me being an administrator thinking that, well, heck, you know, I can feed a good chicken and a bad chicken, they're gonna cost me the same, so we'll euthanize him, and she stopped me. And she said, Miss Kelly, I have problems too, would you get rid of me? We kept that chicken, he lived with rabbits for seven months until he died. These kids see themselves in these animals. They understand that there are rules and regulations but they also understand that we love them and that our sole mission is them. Therapy is no longer a um, luxury. It is an absolute need. Most of the times what, what we're doing is we're doing therapy, but it's like um, what I like to call it is like they don't know it's therapy therapy. Abdul Rahman Ibn Muhammad is the executive director of My People Clinical Services. They provide therapeutic and crisis intervention support to families and children. Because if we said to them, come to my office so we could have a therapeutic um, uh, talk about the, the, the fight you got into last week, they wouldn't come to my office. I mean, like, literally, I have that plan this week. I got a young person I'm going to meet with, and I'm saying, hey, man, let's go to lunch. And then at lunch, while we're eating a sandwich, 
It gives them the opportunity to talk about what's going on. I'm always thinking about how, as social workers, we have to go to the community as opposed to expecting that they would come to us. Well, my career started due to just a blessing, I, I say. Uh, a professor, Dr. Michael Borrero from the University of Connecticut School of Social Work, uh, was doing a study on disproportionate minority hiring um, when I was about 20, 20 years young. And um, I thought he was insulting me because I didn't understand what disproportionate minority hiring was. That's Iron Nazario of Peace Center of Connecticut. Earlier, you heard him talk about growing up around violence, eventually joining a gang and being in and out of prison. He offered me $15 an hour. And when you offer someone who's on the streets, kind of broken, doing whatever to survive, the $15 an hour was so appealing that I, I listened to him. And when I received the opportunity from UConn, I was still actually in the gang and I would go to UConn wearing my gang colors and then come back to, to the streets and fight and do whatever. So I was kind of like riding the fence and it was hard. And that kind of started the process for me. Going on three years ago, I founded the uh, Peace Center of Connecticut. From a young man that didn't have much peace growing up and into my 20s, uh, I want to be able to, to build as much as I can. Uh, we identify possible venues or events or, or happenings in the community that may lead to gun violence or gang violence. We get called in by the city of Hartford mayor's office and police department to come up with strategies and ways that we can prevent uh, gun violence from happening at these events. But we get the first crack at, at the young people or at the people in the community because our goal is not to have them arrested, but to defuse it. We target the young people that are involved in these groups and start talking to them providing them resources, looking at what their needs are, and determining the best course of action to make sure that they understand that they can leave. There are many former gang members that are working as part of these teams. We can speak to the fact that you can't get out because there, there's there's a misnomer or, or you know misunderstanding that, that individuals can't exit gangs, and that's not true. Uh, I know tons of guys that are out. Drugs are the root of a lot of crimes. David Owens is the court reporter for the Hartford Current. Property crimes, I mean, burglars are stealing to get drugs for money, people breaking into cars. Very often shootings and homicides are related to uh, disputes over drug turf or something to do with drugs. Mental health is another large component. A lot of the people I see in Superior Court are people who I would characterize as people who are hurting in some way, uh, they're mentally ill. They are suffering from a drug addiction. I don't see a lot of evil people, if that makes sense. Most of the people who end up in court are just people who have made very bad mistakes, very bad decisions, or they're people who are suffering from an illness. Well, a very wise judge once told me that he could address a lot of the crime problems in Hartford by having, instead of a jail, a drug treatment facility available, a place to send people who need help. Warren Hardy experienced the dangers of the drug epidemic firsthand. Um, I grew up on Earl Street, and Earl Street, I would say in the early 70s, you know what I'm saying, up until like, you know what I'm saying, the late 80s was a pretty good street. Everyone knew each other. It was a lot of support. But in the late 80s and early 90s is when crack cocaine came out, and it played a huge um, role in the lives of not just people in that community, but people all over and my mom ended up um, becoming addicted to drugs. And this is a woman that loved me like unconditionally. Like, so once the, the drugs came into our household, it was like somebody hit a switch. Um, I became a product of my environment because I started using marijuana. Um, and then in order for me to use it, I had to sell drugs in order to get the drug. It's bigger than a specific community issue, that there are systemic issues that continue to be 
maybe not so much as a direct cause, but more of an indirect cause to create some of the environments or situations that occur in a person's home or in their community. I take ownership, um, regardless of the circumstances under which I grew up, which having two parents on drugs, family members on drugs, and my house was considered um, what some would say uh, uh, the trap house, the block, the crack house. My house was it. A lot of young people were watching me because I made stealing cars, selling drugs, um, gambling, all those negative things. I made them look really good. And the outcome is now those same young people are doing the same thing and their kids are doing the same thing. So I'm taking my responsibility um, serious. You know, something that impacted uh, myself as a, a homicide detective is, you know, you'd You'd get the call at night that, you know, there's been a shooting. Again, here's Brian Foley. Uh, we'd drive into the neighborhood and you'd start to see the police lights a block or so out and the ambulance lights. And uh, you'd start to see the yellow tape and you'd walk into that crime scene and you'd see the evidence markers down and you'd see the, uh, the body or the blood stains uh, there or the car that's all shot up with the blood everywhere. And you walk inside that yellow tape. Crowds of people have gathered. I took some time deliberately uh, over the, my career to walk inside that yellow tape, turn around and look back, and what do I see on the other side of the yellow tape? And you see families, you see kids playing like nothing's going on, like nothing's happening. And you cannot tell me that does not have an effect on a child whose brain is developing. If that happened to my neighborhood where, you know, I, I'd be impacted by it for, if it happened once, I'd be impacted by it for the rest of my life. Uh, we've, we as in law enforcement have tried so many different things with, you know, mass arrests, sweeping street corners, um, and you've seen these things not work. And in fact, probably keeps the areas that are impoverished to stay impoverished when you're pulling so many people out of the population and putting them in, in incarcerating them and then limiting their opportunities when they come back in. And it just creates a cycle. So many of our shooters and so many of our shooting victims were previously incarcerated, I'd say in the 90 percentile. My name is Judy Dworn, and I'm the executive and artistic director of the Judy Dworn Performance Project. Dworn works with incarcerated populations using art, dance, and performance as therapy. I think it's really important to realize, for everybody to realize, that 95% of the people who are incarcerated are coming back into the community. And so we really need to think about incarceration as a preparation for that reentry and for a successful reentry so we can stop the endless cycle of recidivism that we find happens. And I think that what these programs do is, first of all, they ground people in expressing themselves and thinking they are important enough to do that. Um, they ask them to think deeply about who they are and what their choices are, what their choices have been, and what their choices can be. And that even if you have housing and a job and all those things, if you've lost yourself, then somewhere along the line, you're not going to necessarily make it. I know one of the dads that we work with at Cybulski recently, um, and he'd been in prison for a long time. And he said that in the 20 years that he'd been trying to connect with his daughters, that them being able to see him take the risk of being, as he described it, goofy and performing for them and expressing himself was like he said the biggest step that he had made in, in connection with them in all of the 20 years that he had been in prison. I can say, and I think everybody in my staff who works with this population in whatever aspect of it, 
It's been one of the most incredible learning experiences that I've ever had. I think we have to always remember that those who are incarcerated are not their mistake. They are people who are growing and becoming. Many people who have been incarcerated have had a lot of time to think about what got them there and a lot of time to think about what they'd like to do. And I think when we give them the opportunity to do that, we give them a chance to really give back. And so many of the people that I work with, they want to do it right and they want to give back. And we need to give them that chance because it's going to make our community a way better place. My name's Beth Hines. I'm the Executive Director for Community Partners in Action. Community Partners in Action operates the Reentry Welcome Center in downtown Hartford, which was funded by a grant from the Hartford Foundation. More than 2,000 people return to the greater Hartford area from prison every year. Returning citizens who come to the Reentry Welcome Center need help with a number of supports, including food, clothing, housing, employment, and more. To know what they've been through, um, to hear some of the stories, and then to watch the progress that they make with the help of our staff is amazing. People can change, and, and we believe that. I could speak to you from my heartstrings about why, you know, people deserve a second chance. You know, frankly, it's for the good of humanity. We all make mistakes. I can tell you there's been a lot of times I've said to myself, but for the grace of God, go I. I'm, I mean, I feel that there, you know, I could have gone either direction at, at several points in my life. And I had support and family and friends that made sure I didn't. And a lot of the people that we work with have nobody. Um, we, we had a fire at our Mart's house, um, which was our transitional home for women. And we were able to, um, thankfully, um, place them in um, one of our vacant buildings. But one thing that just was so heart-wrenching, quite honestly, was when several of the women said, you know, what am I going to do? You're all I have. We're saying in the state of Connecticut, we are the state that's leading the charge with respect to formerly incarcerated. We are the second chance state. Brandon McGee is a state representative for the 5th Assembly District, which includes Windsor and Hartford. Brandon is an advocate for re-entry and housing issues. Last year, he hosted a listening tour to hear from returning citizens. And if you go out to the streets and you speak directly with our neighbors and friends who have experienced the criminal justice system, they'll tell you firsthand, I ain't got a chance, never had a chance. Many individuals with a criminal background, depending on the crime committed, many individuals don't even get an opportunity to apply uh, to housing. Uh, but the major piece is the perception that many homeowners have when they have an individual with a particular background. You know, oh my God, they're a criminal. We don't want them in our neighborhoods. And so these individuals are wanting to reunite with their families only to have the door shut in their face because of their criminal history of which they spent time, they've redeemed themselves, they're home now, and why are we still holding them hostage? This issue is personal for Brandon. My dad, uh, as far as I can remember, he passed away in 2007, and um, it was on the day of my college graduation. Uh, and I remember his words. He said, uh, Brandon, I am not going to um, leave this, this earth until I hear your voice and you say I did it, Dad. 
And I promise you that is exactly how it happened. Uh, I called him. I said, this is it. I'm graduating, you know, and um, he couldn't say much because he was very sick. But I, I heard him like, I'm proud of you, son, and all that good stuff. And they told me an hour later he had passed away. Right. And just the other day, I was cleaning out our basement and I found all of these letters that he had written me over the years as a young boy. This is what got me involved on this particular issue. I could remember, or I can remember when he would apply for jobs only to get the runaround. It was because of his criminal history that he wasn't able to actually secure employment. I understand the impacts that it had on my family while my father was gone. But I also believe that the conversation is much bigger than just talking about formerly incarcerated. We've got to get back to addressing our education system. We have to begin providing quality opportunities for individuals that live in neighborhoods that have been overlooked and underrepresented. You and I may be able to say we need to have grit. Abdul Rahman Ibn Muhammad of My People Clinical Services. Because we, when you start a, a, a game, if you have all of the tools to be successful in the game, then you should be successful. But if you start the game, and not only do you not have all the tools, but you also have all these other barriers popping up in your way. Drugs, violence, uh, no, no role model, poor education system, all working against you. The games are two different games. One person has all the tools, all the resources, everything they need, and they have the map. <laughs> it's like, this is what you got to do to get through this game. And I feel like if more leaders... If more non-leaders, like people that, like that's our problem in our community, is that the people that had all of the, the tricks, they don't give back. They just keep going on with their life, and their life is great. You go look at their Facebook page, wonderful life. But it's like the reality is, is that if every person that actually has a little leg up went back and tried to help somebody out, I just feel like um, we could do a lot more. Well, at first, it was just my mom. My mom would just like, tell me where we're going somewhere. And then when I get there, she'll tell me like, oh, you know, you have to speak, right? That's Tariq Marquez. He's living proof that anyone can become a leader, regardless of their age. Earlier, you heard his story about being shot at age seven and falling into a depression. Tariq rose from that awful situation to become an activist, speaking out to fellow teenagers about gun violence. I was 11. I just wanted to be like with my friends playing. Like, I'd rather not go to an event at four o'clock in the evening and be, with, be around a bunch of adults talking about me getting shot. As I kept doing it, I started to like it because I realized that um, it's possible that I could make a major impact. We started off um, just going to people like community events, and then it went up to me meeting uh, after the Newtown 20, in 2014. Newtown, they, they, they extended the arm to us, and for about two to three years, I started going to D.C. with them for their, uh, we were going to the legislative, like the representative's offices. The number one thing I'm really trying to push into the youth is just to lead by example. They've grown up around certain things like guns, gangs, and drugs. That's what they see. So when they get to a certain age, it's, okay, now I'm going to follow in these footsteps. So what I'm really trying to push is to lead by example. Because I'm still new at this. Because, like, you know, I just turned 18. Like, I'm just now, like, becoming, a, like, a young adult. Most of the time, I like to listen. Like, 
a lot of youth or some youth are already like their head is already screwed on straight like they already know what's going on they know exactly what to talk about and then there's others where they're like they still have a certain kind of mindset that you're trying to get them out of i can't reach millions of people all at once but i could reach a kid at a time if i change the way one kid think then that kid could change how another kid think it's a chain reaction it's not just um, individuals having access to guns. It's individuals having the right and the type of good education that they need to have and, and, and resources that they need to have. It's individuals having good mental health. Deborah Davis of Mothers United Against Violence. So our job is to make sure that individuals know that, yes, people are living in trauma. They're walking around in trauma. And you may walk through the neighborhood and say, oh, they look fine. But that person is not fine. So for me, community is having that same kinds of protections, feeling like you belong, feeling like you can have the resources that you need to have in your community. It is love. It should be love. It should be hope. In order to reduce crime and violence and make our community safer, we need to address root causes such as poverty and education. We need to offer support and therapy for young people suffering from trauma. We need to foster better relationships between police and the communities they serve. We need to address our criminal justice system and the cycle of incarceration. Most importantly, we need to care about our neighbors. We'll leave you with some thoughts from Iron Nazario of Peace Center of Connecticut. St. Francis Hospital did a survey and they asked a number of people, what's the number one reason why there's violence in your community? I believe it was 86% of them answered that they don't know their next door neighbor. What I want to be able to do is be able to have people say, I started to know my neighbor. I started to get to know my neighbor. Now I feel connected to that neighbor, so I'm less prone to hurt that person. But my experience is that there are more successes here then there are failures. Look, just look at the numbers as a total. If you look at the population of young people that are, that are in Hartford, and you hear, unfortunately, about 25, 26 murders or, or 100 shootings, whatever it is, or 100 shots, shots fired, think about all those other kids that are not shooting. Think about all those kids that are, that are struggling through all of that and still are graduating high school, still are going to college. I, don't, I haven't met one kid in my entire career in a long time that has told me I can't wait to die out here on these streets. I can't wait to be shot. There's no kid here that wants that. The, the odds are stacked against you. There's a great need for more adult involvement, and not just from the purse or the, or the wallet. I'm talking about physically being out there so these young people can, can believe that adults still believe in them. I think I am here for a reason, and I was shot. I've been stabbed. You know, My brother was murdered here. Um, I lost... 17 friends in one year to be so close to that something needed me here um, and I believe my purpose uh, is clear now my purpose is to bring as much peace and unity and love and compassion to a community as I can I bought into that so if I was a bass and you were a fisherman you'd have me on a hook my friend I'm hooked to peace I'm hooked to it because I've seen the, the positive impact that it can have Thanks for listening to Disinvested. I'm Tyler Johnson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share with your friends. In our next episode, we'll talk about workforce development and skill attainment. A number of people in our region face barriers to employment that prevent them from reaching their full potential. 
How do we help people find not just jobs, but careers? Tune in next week. This podcast is created by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. Produced by Tom Zaleznak, Steph McGillivary, Michaela Mendegraal, and Autumn Gordon Chow. Music provided by Among the Acres. Special thanks to everyone who appeared in this episode. The Hartford Foundation supports organizations in Greater Hartford through grants, capacity building, public policy, and more. Visit hfpg.org to learn more.